Well, good morning and greetings in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be here. It's good to see Stevie here this morning. Welcome. And it's also good to see Sunderland here this morning. It's good to have you here for a few weeks. Today we want to look again at the book of Judges, and this is the second in a series of three messages that I'd like to look at um, in the book of Judges. And, and the reason why I think it's important to spend more time in Judges than perhaps just one sermon is because I think there's three different ways that we can look at the book of Judges, or maybe there's three different perspectives uh, that we can view the book of Judges through. One is to see it as a series of just catastrophic and unbelievably sad events, difficult, challenging, event after event, the people of God finally being brought into the land of Canaan, where God can relate to them, God can fellowship with them, they can have their own land, they can have whatever they need and want, and then they walk away from him. Terrible, unbelievable. And that's what we looked about at the first sermon that I preached the last time. We looked at how mankind in general, and even God's people in particular, when they walk away from God or when they're left to themselves, tend to become more and more deeper and deeper into sin and spiral downward and trend into deeper and deeper depravity. The book of Judges, over, over time, we saw that the people uh, tended to have shorter times of peace and longer times of oppression as the book spirals downward into total chaos. And so I encouraged us, and I would encourage you today again, to take a deeper look into yourself, into your own life, and consider the depravity that is in your own heart. And think about the attitude that I feel from time to time, and I'm guessing you probably also feel that attitude of, you know, I got this. I, I can do this on my own. I don't, I don't really need God. But how, without God, we find ourselves in the pages of the book of Judges, acting in the same way, experiencing the same things, and relating to each other and to God in the same way as these people did. And finally, how that leads us to a decision point. Because there's really only two choices. And the one choice is I can decide to surrender to my own depraved heart, or I can decide to surrender to Christ. And there's really only two options that we see. Another way that we can observe or view the book of Judges is to see how God uses ordinary people in difficult circumstances to fulfill his plan and his will. How God comes and rescues his people time after time and how God's grace and redemption is woven through time when his people turn to him. And that's what we'll look at today in today's sermon. The book of Judges, the sovereignty of God. And then there's also a third way that we could look at the book of Judges, and that's to take the individual stories, which we'll do next time that I preach. We'll look at some of the individual judges and how God used them and the challenges that they faced and the things that they experienced on an individual basis. And so we'll look at these three aspects in the book of Judges. And one of the goals that I have with this series of messages and is for us to get into the Word, to appreciate it, and to enjoy it. 
Because I find that I so often misunderstand Scripture, or I skim over it, or my attitude and my understanding of Scripture isn't where it should be, and that really affects my ability to read it, to appreciate it, to learn from it, and to understand it. And so in the past, I preached on Philemon and Leviticus. Now I'm preaching on Judges. At some point, I'll probably preach on Lamentations. I think that's another book that's often overlooked. And I I found in my own life, as I read some of these books, like Leviticus, for example, it's just a boring story of rituals and blood and gore and what's it really all about. And even Judges, disgusting, gory. What are these stories for? Why are they in the Bible? Why would God want to have them written down for all of us to read today? But that's not the case, and that's not the end, and that's not the purpose of the book. As we saw the last time I preached, and hopefully we'll expound a little bit more on that today, and then in one more message at some point in the future. And so, in this book of complete and absolute chaos, we see another theme, that of the sovereignty of Almighty God. Now, there's a key phrase in Judges. There's a key verse, you might say, that's found four times. Can anyone quote the key verse that's found in Judges four different times? Talked about that a little bit the last time. In those days, there was no king. And the people, every man, did what was right in his own eyes. Now, there's a few times when the Bible talks about everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. And those times are times of devastation, typically. One thing I'd like to mention here before I get started, if you'd like to dig deeper into the book of Judges, I'd recommend the book called Be Available by Warren Wearsby. Um, Very good book on the book of Judges. Uh, Just the deeper dive, deeper digging into it, looking at some of these aspects of God's sovereignty, man's choices, and some of those things. So if you'd like to do additional study, that's a book that that I enjoyed and that I would recommend. As we think about the sovereignty of God, and particularly in the book of Judges, we have to come to grips with the age-old differences in how we look or how we think through this subject of the sovereignty of God. So I'm going to dig into that just a little bit here this morning. A couple of questions to get us thinking. Don't answer these, but I want you to think about them. What does it mean when we say that God is sovereign? Does the reality that God is sovereign override the choices that we make as humans? Or do our choices, on the flip side, do our choices override God's sovereignty? And then he just picks up the pieces and makes the best of it. Or can you have it both ways? What does it mean that God is sovereign anyway? What do we mean by that? A couple of definitions here, a couple of things a couple of statements that I believe define for us what, it, what we mean when we say God is sovereign. One is that God is in control. God has control over all things. We sang the song, I Sing the Mighty Power of God. God has control over all things. Colossians says it this way, He is before all things, and by him all things consist. So he created all things, and by him all things hold together. God is ultimately in control over all things. Very simple and basic 
definition of the sovereignty of God. But beyond that, God has the absolute right to do all things as he wills. God is not just in control because he's the strongest. Yes, he's the strongest, and so therefore he has control. But he's also in control because he has the absolute right to do so. All things come from God and depend on God. And these three concepts are very common and found throughout Scripture, throughout the stories and the concepts that we find in Scripture. But let's not be completely deterministic this morning in our perspective, because there's another side to this. And and when I say deterministic, what I mean by that is is the idea that I have no control over what I do. Uh, what What I do is completely controlled by outside forces, predetermined for me and pre-wired into uh, my will, my supposed quote-unquote will, and makes me do uh, whatever I do, whether or not I want to do it. So let's not be deterministic in that way, because there's another side to this, and that's the side that God gives us choice. And that's also very clear in Scripture. And throughout Scripture, we see examples of the course of history literally being changed, literally being changed by man's choices and man's decisions. And I don't know if that's exciting or not. I think it gives us some hope. The idea that we can shift the course of history by our own choices, by what we do, by the decisions that we make, that's also scary in one sense. And we can even see how man's prayers, prayer requests, humility, repentance, and conversations with God bring about ultimately changing God's mind, so to speak. And so we wrestle with that and struggle with that because we know that God doesn't change his mind, and yet we know that the stories that we see how what man does affects what happens in history. And so I believe that rather than having these two opposing ideas, one is that God is in ultimate control and the other is that man has choice. Rather than viewing them as opposing ideas that we need to choose between, I believe that they're different perspectives of the same reality that must be held in tension. So they're not two opposing ideas that we have to choose between. We have to choose one or choose the other. It's an either or. Rather, I believe that they are different perspectives of the same reality that must be held in tension. And the first perspective is God is in control and does as he wills. And the second perspective is that man has choice and can do as he wills because God has given us that. Now, ultimately, God wins, right? At the end, ultimately, God wins. Man has choice, but God ultimately decides the roles of the game, you might say, and what the results are of those choices. Today we'll focus a bit more on the reality that God is in control and that he does as he wills, and then in the next sermon we'll look a bit more at man's choices and how those choices can affect history. So there's four aspects of God's sovereignty that we will explore this morning in the book of Judges. One is that God rules and overrules throughout history. God rules and overrules throughout history. The second one is God gives people the leaders that they deserve and uses human leaders to accomplish his will. God gives people the leaders they deserve 
and uses human leaders to accomplish his will. Thirdly, God's word stands in spite of people's unfaithfulness. God's word stands in spite of people's unfaithfulness. And fourthly, God's story is not over yet. So the first one is God rules and overrules throughout history. We have example after example after example of this throughout the book of Judges. The people cry out for help, and God comes to the rescue. God raises up a leader. And in particular, I want to call our attention to seven, seven references throughout the book of Judges where the Spirit of the Lord comes upon someone specific for a specific time, for a specific reason. So you can open your Bible to the book of Judges, and we'll be kind of briefly looking at a few of these, and we'll be leafing through the book as we go along throughout the sermon today. The first reference to the Spirit of the Lord coming upon someone is in Judges 3.10. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, and he judged Israel and won a victory over the enemy. Judges 6.34, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he gathered an army to fight the enemy. Judges 11.29, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he was able to conquer the enemy. And then there's four times, interestingly enough, there's four times that it's recorded that this happens to Samson. Chapter 13, verse 25, the Spirit of the Lord began to move him. Chapter 14, verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he tore the lion apart with his bare hands. Chapter 14, verse 19, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he killed 30 Philistines and gave their garments in payment to those who had guessed his riddle. And then chapter 15, verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he killed a 1,000 Philistines with the donkey's jawbone. Four times it's, it's recorded that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. Now, in addition to these specific times when God specifically, when the Spirit of the Lord specifically came upon a specific person for a specific time to accomplish a specific task, in addition to that, we see throughout the book that God works through all nations. He worked through the Jews, his chosen people. He worked through the Gentiles. He worked through the Canaanites, the Philistines, the people that were around Israel, and he used those Gentile nations to discipline his people and to bring his people back to him. And I want us to think about that. God does not only work through his people. God works through everything, all events that we find in history to bring about his ultimate plan. Now, we may not see a pattern to that. As we trace God working through history, it's hard to find a pattern as people and I would probably say, venture to say, as men especially, we like patterns. We like formulas. We like to understand why things work. And so we look for patterns in history, and there's, it's not always there. It's not always there. But there's always a, an ultimate plan. God may not have a pattern as we see it, but there is ultimately a plan. What often appears like accidents may actually be divine appointments. And these things should give us confidence in trusting in God in our current world, in our current world scene and current situations. So remember, first of all, God rules and overrules throughout history. Not only does he rule, but he overrules. He is over all throughout history. Secondly, God gives people the leaders 
that they deserve and uses human leaders to accomplish his will. And again, throughout the book, it seems that the people are turning farther and farther away from God. We look at that in the last message where the times of peace are getting shorter and the times of oppression are getting longer. And we attributed a lot of that to the moral decay of the leaders. But what about the moral decay of the people themselves? Where were they at? We could probably also attribute this trend to the moral decay of society as a whole. Now, the leaders in the book of Judges are often imperfect, as we see, and some of them were downright immoral. But was this a reflection of the state of God's people? Was there no one, no moral, upright man that God could call to serve him in leadership of the people? Particularly later in the book. What about the leaders that we have in our land today? We often talk about them and think about them and wonder why our leaders are the way they are. Is it just simply a reflection of where we have come as a culture and of who we are? But in spite of who is in leadership in our land, God still uses carnal human governments to accomplish this will. Now, does this mean he condones everything that, he, that they do? Does he condone all of the decisions that they make? Certainly not. But it does mean, like it says in Proverbs 21.1, that the heart of the ruler, or the heart of the king, or we might say the heart of the president of the United States is like water in the hand of God that he turns wherever he wills. God's will or man's choice. We're left wrestling with those two realities. Now we also noted how God's spirit came upon specific men at specific times to accomplish a specific task. But again, does that mean that God condones all the actions of those men? Think about it. Who's the man with the most times recorded in Judges that God's spirit came upon him? Samson, who was the most immoral leader in the book of Judges. I'll let that for you to ponder. So why does God do this? Does, does God therefore condone the actions of those men? And again, I would say certainly not, but he still used them to accomplish his plan and his will. The judges did the work that God called them to, but did they, did they provide spiritual leadership? Can a bad person be a good leader? Perhaps a bad person can lead in certain areas, but a bad person cannot be a good example of character or lead people to build the type of character that God wants to see. All human leaders, even godly ones, are flawed in some way. But that should not keep us from striving from the best in terms of character. After all, what, div- what defines a leader's success anyway? Is it success in the eyes of the people or becoming more like Christ himself? So in spite of there being no king in Israel, God still worked. God still worked. And I want us to take a moment to think about that because having a king is no guarantee of following God. And you can, through your mind's eye, you can go through the Old Testament and think about the time of the kings. Certainly no guarantee that the people would follow God. So government is important, but God is not limited by government. And while we enjoy the freedoms of democracy today, God does not need democracy 
to do his work, or any other specific type of government for that matter. God will accomplish his will in spite of the government structure. And Proverbs 14.34 would apply here where it says, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So God gives people the leaders that they deserve and uses human leaders to accomplish his will. Thirdly, God's word stands in spite of people's unfaithfulness. We can rest in that. We can place our hope and our trust in the reality that God's word stands in spite of people's unfaithfulness. God's blessing often works with and through the unworthy and the wayward. Think about your own life. God's blessing often works with and through the unworthy and the wayward. The judges had faith in God, and therefore they were able to do what they did. Hebrews 11 gives us some examples of this. Even when their faith was imperfect or they failed completely, God's word never failed. God's word continued on. God provided the judges with promises, but not necessarily all the answers that they were looking for. He gave them the promises that they needed to do the task that he assigned to them to get the job done, but did not always tell them how it would work or what the final results would be. God expected them to trust that his word would not fail and he would do the rest. And that's what he asks of us today. God's word stands in spite of people's unfaithfulness. In spite of what we do, God's word is what it is. It says what it says, and it stands. Fourth thing I'd like to look at is that God's story is not over yet. And this gives us a lot of comfort. It gives me a lot of comfort as I look at the book of Judges and as I look at my life today. And that is that God's story is not over yet. To illustrate this, let's look a bit more closely at the story of Samson. You can turn to Judges 13 and 14. And here we find the beginning of the life of Samson. Now, if we were to describe Samson, if we were to compare him to all the other judges at this time in this book, we would probably come to the conclusion that Samson was the lowest judge when it comes to morality. Promiscuous, violent, arrogant. Beyond that, Samson was a maverick, a one-man army on his own. He does not appear to be interested in spiritual things at all from what we can tell in Scripture. And we could describe his instincts and his actions as animal-like. And yet, as we reviewed before, somehow God used this man to move his kingdom along. In Judges 13, where Jason read, Samson's life begins with much promise. We read how Samson's mother was barren until the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you will have a son. And this son was not just any son. He was to be a special son. He was not to drink wine, not to eat anything unclean, or cut his hair. He was to be a Nazarite, or consecrated, or set apart for a specific reason for God's work. This was not just any boy or any man, but he was to be special, consecrated, set apart for God's work. And so as we read here in Judges chapter 13, we're perhaps reminded of the story of Hannah and Samuel, very similar story. 
Very similar story of how Hannah was barren, and then she conceived and had Samuel, and she gave Samuel to God for his work. And if we were reading Judges for the first time here this morning, Judges chapter 13, we would probably have a level of excitement. Here is finally a judge that God will use to free his people from the enemy and to lead his people back to him and hopefully to a long time of peace from there. This was to be a special judge, perhaps even a king, who was to lead his people. But that's not what God promised. That's not what God promised. God promised that Samson would begin to, or we could say take the lead in, delivering Israel from the Philistines. So why the disappointing end to the great start of this story? Why did it end that way? I want us to take a step back, a bird's eye view perhaps you might say, of this situation because it appears like at this time in Israel's history, Israel and the Philistines were, we might say, at a, a short time, a short duration here of peace. They were learning to get along together a bit. Um, they were beginning to live together in peace. Um, you might even say that there was a bit of friendliness there. And it appears that that's right because they allowed Samson, a Nazarite, a man set apart to God, to come and marry one of their girls. And I'm sure that they understood the implications of that, the power that it gave them to have Samson connected to them by marriage in this way. And I, I would guess, I would venture to guess that they knew some of the prophecies about what Samson was supposed to do to them, how he was supposed to uh, lead the people of Israel to victory over them. And yet there's, there's, a, there's a friendliness here between the two cultures, between the people of Israel and the Philistines. Now, throughout history, Throughout the history between these two nations, the Israelites and the Philistines, there was always a battle over who could have better weapons and therefore total dominance over the other. We see this in 1 Samuel a couple of times. 1 Samuel 13 talks about a time when the Philistines made sure that there was no smith in Israel so that the Israelites could not sharpen their weapons and their tools. And they had to go down to the Philistines to do that. So they were, during that time, they were under control of the Philistines. And then 1 Samuel 17 talks about Goliath's spearhead of iron, which was certainly a superior weapon at that time. So these two nations were constantly back and forth, trying to gain dominance and superiority in weapons, and therefore dominance and superiority in culture, trying to take the other one down. But during this time, there was a time of peace. And it certainly appears that during this time, the Philistines were the stronger and more dominant nation. And I believe, I believe that the devil and the Philistines had one goal, and that was to assimilate the Israelite nation into their nation. Maybe not by force, maybe not conquering them or being dominant, but being just dominant enough being just dominant enough that the Israelites couldn't rebel and that they would assimilate into their culture. Now, this would have resulted in the people of Israel completely being destroyed. Maybe not the people being destroyed, but their connection with God being destroyed, their culture being destroyed, the way that God had set up their nation being destroyed. 
as they completely assimilated into the culture of the Philistines. And so one of the things that I see here in the life of Samson is that God used Samson to be a thorn in the Philistine side again and again and again to keep the nations from being too friendly, to keep the nations at odds against each other, and ultimately to save the Israelites from being assimilated into the Philistine nation. And so when all looks lost, when the, when the man that the people were hoping would free them from their enemies ends up in lust and immorality, remember, God's story is not over yet. God still has a plan. Another story that shows the sovereignty of God in perhaps an unexpected way during this time is, a, is the story of Ruth. And I recognize that Ruth is not in the book of Judges, but Ruth, the story of Ruth happens simultaneously with the book of Judges. We can see in the first several, several verses there in Ruth that this story happened during the time of the Judges. Now, the irony here is that this is probably the story that gives us the most hope during this time, during the time of the book of Judges. It's not found in that book, but it did take place in the same time frame. And also, ironically, this glimmer of hope was not due to faithfulness of the people of God, but rather due to faithfulness of a heathen woman who was a part of a heathen culture in a heathen land. And that is the story that gives us perhaps the most hope during this time. Now, the book of Ruth starts out tragically. Elimelech and Naomi moved to, to Moab with their two sons to escape a famine. And moving to Moab was probably not an advisable thing to do because the chances of being assimilated into the Moabite culture when you move there were pretty high without the support of the Israelites around you being assimilated into their culture and worshiping their gods. And as time passed, Elimelech died, and Naomi's two sons died, and Naomi decided the time had come to move back to her people. And here we see the decision point for Orpha and Ruth, the two daughters-in-law. They have a chance and a choice and a decision to make. And this choice is not only where to live or what people group to associate with, but ultimately, which God to serve and which God to follow. And Ruth, we see, makes the choice to follow the God of the Israelites. And we might, we might look at that story and be amazed. How could she leave her people? How could she leave her family? How could she leave where she grew up? But I think the most amazing thing in the story of Ruth is how could she leave her gods for the God of Israel? Apparently, she saw something. I don't know if she saw it in, in, in Naomi or in Elimelech or in her husband. The story doesn't say, but apparently she saw something that convinced her that the God of the Israelites was ultimately the God to serve. Ruth makes this choice to follow God, the God of the Israelites, during a dark time in which many in Israel had forgotten their God completely. Or maybe could no longer, maybe they no, no longer knew their God. Because of her faithfulness to God, even as a heathen woman living in a heathen culture, she became the great grandmother of David and is in the lineage of Christ himself. 
So when it appears all is lost, that the people of God have lost their way, that the enemies of God are gaining strength, remember, God's story is not over yet. So there's four things that I want us to remember about the sovereignty of God. And the first thing is that God rules and overrules throughout history. The judges were raised up directly by God, and God moved them by his spirit from time to time, showing his sovereignty. God will, God is going to accomplish his will. In the book of Judges, God did not always have good men to work with, you might say, but he accomplished his will anyway. Secondly, God gives people the leaders that they deserve and uses human leaders to accomplish his will. What type of leader do you deserve? What type of leader do we deserve? What type of leader do you emulate or want to be like? Thirdly, God's word stands in spite of people's unfaithfulness. God's word stands in spite of man's unfaithfulness. God provides us with promises that we can rely on. And even when we do not act perfectly, God still keeps his word. The Bible says God cannot deny himself. Even if we lack faith, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. God keeps his word. And that is in spite or regardless of what we do and what we decide. And fourth, God's story is not over yet. The book of Judges is is a depressing book. Depressing, gory, sad. But it's important to note that it's not the end of the story. The story does not end with the book of Judges. It ends with the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, we see that God ultimately wins. God ultimately will win in the end. And so the book of Judges isn't designed to be a book to show us how God's people should live. It's not a beautiful portrait of God's people harmoniously living together and serving him. Nor is it a book of how God's people were faithful to him. Rather, it's a book of how God faithfully raised up leaders and a remnant of people here and there to keep serving him. It's not a book of man's faithfulness to God. It's a book of God's faithfulness in spite of man's choices. In spite of how things are going now, God's way will win in the end, and we see this clearly in the book of Judges. Does it seem like evil is getting worse and worse? Are you concerned about the economy, the Ukraine war, the potential conflict with China? Is a health challenge threatening the way that you live? God's story is not over, and he will win in the end. The deliverance that were provided by the human judges during the book of Judges was always temporary, partial, and imperfect. Temporary in the sense that it did not last. It did not last long. Partial in the sense that it it didn't typically include the entire nation of Israel, and it did not always make all things right. And imperfect in the sense that there was not always a complete turning back to God with a pure heart. So the, the judges in the book of Judges could only provide temporary, partial, and imperfect deliverance. And that points us ahead to our need for Jesus Christ as the perfect judge. Just as in the story of Samson, God will have 
the last word today. Perhaps a leader has let you down. Many respected Christian leaders have fallen throughout history. And I could speak of one personally, of one famous Christian apologist who was very instrumental in my faith journey and where I am spiritually today. His thoughts and his perspectives on life, very instrumental in my life, who was found to have been involved in adulterous acts. And you can probably think of someone that you respect or that you did respect who has let you down. But let's remember, we are not followers of man. We are ultimately followers of God. Human leaders will disappoint, but God's story is not over yet, and God is still in control. And just as in the story of Ruth, God ultimately controls the narrative. Ruth made the decisions that she made, and God blessed her for that. And so, in the last chapter of Judges, the book kind of abruptly ends. God's people are still intact, at least barely. God's still in control, at least that's what we say. After the civil war that's described in Judges 21, each man returned to his own tent. And the final words of the book are a reminder to us of where the people were at that time. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so as we come to the end of the book of Judges, it leaves us wondering, what is God up to? What will God do next? How will God continue to rescue his people from their enemies? And how, ultimately, will God rescue his people from themselves? And so, in the book of Judges, like we find with all other Old Testament books, the only way to answer these questions is to keep on reading. Continue reading the books that come after Judges, and that's how we find out what God does. Let's kneel for prayer.